You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. All right. Good morning, Real Life. How are you doing? We're doing woo. You know, it's so funny to me. Woo. Uh, I didn't know woo was an emotion, but that's how we're doing. Woo. Glad you're here. We are in Revelation chapter 7, and all week I have had Kirk Franklin, the song Revolution, going through my head. Anybody? Anybody with me on this? Book of Revelation chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. Read anybody? I should have played it. I should have pulled the video up. I debated... Go home and YouTube it. Kirk Franklin, revolution. Do you want a revolution? Say, do you want... Uh, I'm all done. So we have been in this series, uh, this, this vision of the throne room of God. And John is there and he sees in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne the scroll, and contained in the scroll is the information that's going to make everything make sense. This is the thing that explains what's happening in the world. This is the thing that's going to help us see what we should be seeing in the world that we live in. And no one is worthy to open it. So it's a mystery and it remains a mystery. And he weeps and he weeps. And then one of the elders comes to him and says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looks and he says, and I saw one as a slain lamb. And that theme has carried through and will carry through the rest of the book. The power of the lion, but expressed in sacrifice. Power expressed in sacrifice is the way that we put the world back together. That's going to be this big piece of revelation. And so what happens is the, the lamb comes and begins to open the scroll and the seven seals and we have the four horsemen and all that stuff. And that all happens in chapter 6. Now in chapter 7, we're going to tackle another one of those really interesting pieces of the book of Revelation that I think there's a ton of confusion about. And so uh, we're going to pull this apart and see if we can't make some sense out of it. So you guys ready to dig in and go to work? Yeah, yeah, let's do this. Chapter 7, here we go. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. By the way, I forgot this one piece before I got started. I believe that if John wrote Revelation in the 21st century, it would be titled, Hashtag Read Zechariah. That's what I think. So uh, remember, we've talked about this. John is pulling all these ideas from all these other sources, Zechariah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these other places that are all kind of saying the same message, but to a different group of people in a very similar set of circumstances. It's almost like John wants to say again and again and again, I've been here, we've been here before, God's not surprised, hang in there. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, 
do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads, which I would love to talk about. That's another sermon for another day. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Anybody heard this number before? The 144,000, what is that? All right, we'll talk about it. Sealed from every, now, you're, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to mark these words. Tribes of the sons of Israel. So underline that, and there's a couple of points of emphasis here. Number one, where do the 144,000 come from? From the tribes of Israel. That's important. The other thing that we want to point out is who are they? They're the sons of the tribes of Israel. Why does that matter? Because these are the men of military fighting age. This is an army. Anytime that you take a census... And this is all census language. This whole section is census language. You only take a census for two reasons. Taxes and to understand how big your army is. You with me? This is a call to arms. This is put on your armor, men. We're going to war. To which we go, yeah! But the problem is <clears throat> the army has to do war the way the general did. And the general had the power of the lion, but did, arm, did battle as a slain lamb. And we got to be okay with that. Because as much as we want to have a, yeah, let's go kick people's butt. Uh, uh, and, and then some of us are like, well, we can't kick people's butts today, but wait till your father gets home. Jesus left as a lamb. He's coming back as a lion. Anybody heard that? Tell you what, pull that verse up for me. Anytime. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben now there's a question. Who was the oldest in Jacob's family? Reuben. So why is Judah listed first? That's a question. Oh, by the way, how many numbers in the book of Revelation so far have been literal numbers? The answer is none. Zero of them have been. Exactly 0.00 of them have been literal numbers. They're metaphors. They're pictures. So is the 144,000 a literal number? No. Some people want to tell you that there's only 144,000 that are making it to heaven. Um. That is an abuse of the text. It's an abuse of the text. 12,000 of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 of the tribe of Gad, a name for those of you that are with child to consider, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, who isn't one of Jacob's sons. What the heck is that? Ooh, what? Like, I would love to... I would, yeah. 
12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, who wasn't even allowed to be synthesized because he didn't own any land. That's 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And where's the one who was left off? Dan. Dan was one of the sons of Jacob. He's not here. Where is he? So Manasseh gets stuck in. He's not Jacob's son. He's Joseph's son. And Dan gets left off. Why? Oh, this is juicy. And we're not even really going to talk about it. But think about this. Dan, when they moved into the promised land, Dan forfeited their portion. Come with me to Israel. We'll walk through it. Both, both parts. If you read the book of Judges, Dan doesn't like their portion, their land. So they go in search of another place and they move to another place. God's allotment for them wasn't good enough. Maybe there's some applications for you and me in that. Do I believe that God's given me everything that I need to succeed or is God somehow holding out on me? Because how I answer that question may determine whether or not I'm counted in the census. That's kind of a big deal. Joseph then, his son Manasseh, gets a portion. So Joseph's tribe gets a double portion, kind of like a behor. Which is really interesting coming in on the heels of Genesis. I... I that's so good. That is such good. That's the best material I got all day. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, total cultural reference, because Domitian had 24 guys, a choir, that came around him all wearing white at all the time, and they sang to him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now the question is, when John went to heaven in his vision, did he actually see that, or is he pulling on cultural references to make a point? And the answer is yes to both of those, right? I would say probably both. Standing before the throne of Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. By the way, a song sang to Augustus, to Nero, and to Domitian, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. That part's added. That part's added. Because we don't want the Lamb. We love that this is a call to arms. The Crusaders use this as justification to go beat up the heathens. We love this as military power. The God's army will. And, and chapter 14, what we're going to learn is that the 144,000, they're virgins. Now, why do I need to know that? Why do I need to know that they're virgins? Here's why. Because the 144,000 isn't just an army. It's an army called to a holy war. And when you're in a holy war, you set yourself aside from anything that makes you impure. So you don't eat anything wrong. You don't drink any alcohol. You don't have sex with anybody. You, don't, you are completely dedicated to the holy cause of this war. This is not just an army. It's an army that's on jihad. but we got to remember how we do battle. We'll get there. Let's go back one slide. 
want to point out, let's go back one more slide. There you go. Uh, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches. If you're taking notes, circle that. Why do I need to know that they're holding palm branches? And why palm branches as opposed to, I don't know, raspberry bushes? I mean, if you're going to pick something. Okay, let's go. Let's get back to where we were. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Shut the front door. Now, When, according to the book of Revelation, is the great tribulation, John has, is having his vision, and in the vision, the tribulation is either happened already or it's happening. And here's the thing. This isn't something that the first readers would have ever said, man, I feel really bad for those people that are going to suffer one day. We try to figure out like premillennial, postmillennial, mid-trip, post-trip, mid-trip, where's the dispensation, where's the, put the tri where's the tribulation, where's the millennial reign, where's the rapture, where's the, where is all that stuff? Those people weren't guessing what the tribulation was. The first readers of this book knew exactly what it was. Domitian was so evil that when he died, Rome tried to strike him from history. I'm not exaggerating. Every place where his name was written on a document was burned. Every place where his name was chiseled into a rock was chiseled out. Every statue of him was torn down and ruined. They wanted to destroy him because Rome thought he was that evil. And no one suffered at his hand more than the Christians. His evilness was everywhere, but especially vicious to the followers of Jesus. These people weren't wondering when the tribulation was. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And who are these people from all tongues and tribes and nations wearing white robes? Who are they? They're people who endured the tribulation. They're people who stood in the midst of a guy like Domitian and said, I will not give up my faith. Yes, it sucks. But this doesn't have the final word. That's who's standing there. These witnesses, this witness this Greek word for witness here is the word that we translate martyr. And, and it's not just, in our world, the word martyr has kind of taken on this nuance of you've got to die for your faith. These people weren't, it's not just that. I think if anyone in this room, in one moment, if somebody came in here, like some communist country came in and invaded here and said, renounce Jesus or die, I think every single one of us would take a bullet for God. We would die for him. The question is, will you live for him? That's way harder 
It's way harder to live for Jesus than it is to die for him. And these people, their witness was not just in their death. It was also in how they chose to live their life. That yes, the suffering is real. Yes, the pain is hard. And I will not quit. And because of that... They stand in the throne room of God. Because they chose to live their life not like the power of a lion, but with the power of a slain lamb, because power in sacrifice actually puts the world back together. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb, which... That makes no sense, right? White in the blood. Blood is red. White in the blood of the lamb. What's the robe? The, let me tell you this. I'm going to tell you how to make a million bucks. I have your attention now. We talk about the throne room of God and the tribulation. Everybody's like, blah, 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 blah. million bucks, I'm in. What? what? You want to make a million bucks, here's how you do it. Remember hypercolor T-shirts? They used to change colors when they get warm. When they change temperature, they would change colors. Hypercolor T-shirts. Until you washed them and then it didn't work anymore. Make baptismal robes that are red when they're dry and white when they're wet. Think about it. You put on a red robe and you go down into the baptismal and you go under the water and you come up and it's white. I just think that would be cool. I would buy one. I would buy one and shower in it. I would... You want to make a million bucks, that's how. There's your million dollar idea. I'll be here all day. I got a, I got a lot of them. These, they've, they've put on their robes washed white with the blood, which again is a total cultural reference that we don't have time for. Go listen to the sermon series on the seven churches. Therefore, they, they are before the throne of God, serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. God sees and shelters them with his very presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. Why do I need to know that the springs of living water is where they're going to get their water from? You should probably underline that because we're going somewhere. Uh, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When? When they stand before the throne of God because they were faithful witnesses. And until that day... Brothers and sisters, family, we will have tears. But the good news is that your tears don't tell the final story. Even if those tears lead you to death, your tears don't have the final word. doesn't mean the pain's not real, and it doesn't mean that the tears aren't desperate. It means that it's not the end. Now, remember what I said, if John wrote this book in the 21st century, what would it be called? Hashtag read with Zachariah. Um, now, 
I want to pull from a section of Zechariah, I want to book in the, the chapter 14 of Zechariah, a couple of pieces that John is pulling from to make this metaphor of his vision of heaven work. So let's read Zechariah 14, 1 through 5. It says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Does this sound familiar? Because in Revelation, all the nations are going to come together. And by the way, we're going to be told in chapter 9 that the size of the army of the world, 200 million. 200 million against 144,000. We're desperately outnumbered. How do we win this battle? Like the slain lamb. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and then the city, the city shall be taken into the houses and plundered and women raped. This is encouraging. Uh, half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. The Lord will fight for you. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west and by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And we all go, oh, Azal, of course. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. This is the day of recompense. God is going to deliver his people. He's going to but not today. And the question is, what do we do in the meantime? And those who stand before the throne must be able, in the midst of terrible pain, very real pain, to be a witness. Now let's read the end of Zechariah 14, because hashtag read Zechariah. Then everyone who survives of all the nations they have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Okay, what? Why that one? Why of all the feasts? We're going to worship God. All the resolution, the resolution of all of this pain and tragedy, all the problems, it's all going to be reconciled in celebrating Sukkot. What? We'll pull it apart. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Why? We'll talk about it. And if the family of Egypt does not go up to present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be a plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This is important, this Feast of Booths. <clears throat> Next slide. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice to them. Now here's the thing. Why is this in there? Well, here's why. Because when meat is sacrificed, people don't eat it. Only the priests get to eat it. And if God is saying that all the meat that gets sacrificed gets boiled at the altar and we all get to come and eat it, what does that mean? We're all his priests. 
Come on. You, by your faithful testimony, are putting your God on display to the world. And there shall no longer be any traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Now, let's go back and pull this feast, this booths thing apart. Because <laughs> this is interesting. Now remember, back in chapter 7 of Revelation, he says that the people are standing before the throne holding palm branches. And they're praying and celebrating the Lord for giving them living water. And here in Zechariah, they're celebrating the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Sukkot. Why? During Sukkot, we move out of our permanent residence and into temporary dwellings made out of palm fronds. Each day, we go a seven-day feast. Each day, we go to the temple and we take a palm frond with us. And we wave it. And we shout to the Lord, Hoshiana, Lord save us. We sing Hosanna like it's Hosanna, like it's some sort of a term of endearment to God. No, that's a desperate cry to God. Lord save us. Hosanna. And for six days, we do this every day, and nothing happens. On the seventh day, the last and greatest day of the feast, the Hoshana Rabbah. The feast changes. And what I love about this moment in John chapter 7, where it says on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus was at the temple. And he shouts in the middle of this frenetic shouting, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And springs of living water will flow out of him. Which, if you think about it, makes no sense. I'm thirsty, so I come to Jesus, and living water goes to other people. What? That's weird. Understand this, that when God promises to the people of Israel, I'm going to send you rain in its season, that promise is critical because the way that the geography of Israel lays out if you have a famine for one season, it doesn't just affect that season. It affects seven years after that. Because the watershed and how it falls is critical for the rains to come at the right time every year all the time. There's never a surplus of water. We need the rain every year. This is why we celebrate Sukkot, and it's why Sukkot is so important. God, send the rain because if you don't send the rain, God, we're going to die. Now, why is that what we remember in heaven? During the Feast of Sukkot, we remember the part of the story where God had delivered them out of Egypt, but they're still wandering in the desert. That's why we live in temporary dwellings. Think about this. For the people of the book of Revelation. Remember we've said this all along in this series. Their appeal isn't to some glad morning when this life is o'er. Their, their appeal is to the empty tomb. And John's message here is the same as it is all throughout the rest of Scripture. You've been delivered. 
but you're still wandering in the desert. Now, will you be faithful and pray for rain? Because in its season, God will show up. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, Jesus says, and streams of living water will flow out of him. It never says that you'll be full. If anybody's thirsty, come to me and you're going to get a drink and it'll quench your thirst. Oh, And then you won't need Jesus anymore because you'll be all not thirsty and stuff. Now what he says is, if anyone is thirsty, are you desperate? Have you faced your own tribulation? Are you suffering? Come to Jesus and the power to be a martyr, a witness, will be given to you. Now that doesn't mean that the pain doesn't matter or that the pain is insignificant or that you're making a much ado about nothing. No, 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 no. What that means is your pain will tell a story about how we serve a God that has the final word and your pain doesn't. You want to know how to put the world back together? Stop trying to avoid pain and start trying to use it to tell a story. With that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table, a moment where we celebrate using pain to tell a story. So for those of you that are serving, I want you to go back and grab that. If you're new with us, we have an open table. What that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold those elements till the end, and we'll take them all together. Um, While they're passing that out, I want to work through a few implications um, here. Number one, the pain is real. There's a whole movement in Christianity that's like, your pain isn't even, like, and they leverage verses like Romans 8 where he says our present suffering is not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's true. That's true. But that doesn't mean that you don't hurt today. Someday there will be glory revealed in us that is beyond comprehension. But today I hurt. Now, let me give you some good news. Whether you walk close to God or not, you're going to endure pain. Pain is no respecter of religious preference. But at least if you're walking with Jesus, your pain has a reason. It has a purpose. It has a goal. It has a story that it tells. If you're not walking with the Lord and you endure pain, it's just tragedy. Enduring hardship today while being faithful to the Lord is all about us being able to tell a story of who our God is and what He's worth to us. And that's why we need a spiritual community. Like, if you're not in a small group, you need to get in one. And here's why. Because some days you're the dog and some days you're the fire hydrant. You know what I'm saying? Like, there are fire hydrant days and, and the re- <laughs> that was funny. I don't care who you are. That's funny. Uh, and the reality is that I wind up giving up 
when I'm the one that keeps feeling like I'm getting beat up in life. I wind up quitting. I wind up bailing out. And that's not okay. We need a community of people who aren't all going through suffering all the time. Not everybody's having a bad day at the same time. Now, some days we are, and that's a, we're going to stay at home and eat soup day. Um, But we need a group of people who are with us that are like, you know what? I'm having a good day. You're having a bad day. I'm going to walk this day with you. Because sometimes the rules are going to switch. And I'm going to have a bad day. And you're going to have a good day. And you can walk with me. This is how spiritual community is supposed to function. Pretending that the pain isn't real is called repression. And repression is at the source of almost all mental illness. So if you want to go crazy, pretend like your pain isn't real. It's real. But we can get through it together. And in the end... Our pain will tell a story of who our God is. Our pain will let the world know that death, even death, doesn't have the final word. So much more I'd like to say about that, but I want to move on. Next implication. God is dealing with evil. He's crushing it under our feet. That's what Romans says, Romans 16. For the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This passage is a call to dealing with evil. And yes, it will come at the cost of the martyr's blood. Because our call isn't to arms. Our call is to laying our lives down. And that will end in death sometimes. We don't wage war the way the world does. That's what the Bible says. Because our war isn't against flesh and blood. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. It's against the powers and principalities. How do we deal with evil? Like the slain lamb. That's how we deal with it. We look like our general. So army of God, get tough. Because the battle's about to get real. The thing is, it's not about us having a dominant Christian physical country. It's about living and acting like Jesus is actually the way the world gets put back together. So we've got to do that. Next implication. Anytime God's army has acted like the slain lamb, the multitudes respond. Oh, and by the way, anytime that God's army has tried to act like the lion, it's caused all kinds of problems. I give to you the crusades who leveraged this passage as God's army to go over there. And I can tell you as somebody who goes to the Middle East a lot, Christians and the name and the reputation of Christ are still paying the price for their decision. And you can go, well, that wasn't us. That's stupid. We would never do that. Yeah, but your family wasn't the one that was butchered. In the name of your peace-loving Jesus. Listen, anytime that God's armies acted like the slain lamb, multitudes respond. Last implication. We know how to feel about evil. We know how to feel about the witness. And this is what I want to leave you with. 
How do you feel the story, the witness of someone who was willing to lay their life down so that you could have hope? And my question is, will you be a witness like that? Or will you be a witness to a contrived American Jesus who makes promises that God has no obligation to fulfill? I would say that this is a better way. It's a harder way. Much, much harder. But infinitely more powerful. Infinitely more powerful. This is a witness to God-man laying his life down so that you and I could have hope. How do you tell that story? And so I would invite you to this. This is a sign that we're part of this covenant of people who do battle the way that the slain lamb does battle. That's what this is. We're telling everyone in this room as we take communion this morning that I've heard these challenging words that sound terribly difficult and inconvenient. But I'm in. I would invite you to this bit of integrity. If you're not willing to say that, please don't take communion with us this morning. Because this is a call to war. But it's a call to a war the way that our general fought it. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup... It's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, Isaiah says that your ways are not our ways and that your thoughts are not our thoughts. And I do not understand why you chose this way to put the world back together. And even more so, I do not understand why you chose to invite flawed people like us to be a part of that. And yet, Lord, somehow I'm so thankful that you did. Give us the courage to live in that truth well. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.